What do you say to someone who's suffering? What do you say to somebody who's suffering? Trials, hardships, suffering. You have the opportunity to say something to them at their home, in the hospital, on the street, at work, wherever you encounter them. What do you say? Well, here's what you don't say. You don't say something insensitive and unrelated. You could ask my wife, Kelsey, the times that we're out shopping, whether it's the grocery store or somewhere else, and I'm distracted. I'm looking at something on the shelf, or I'm looking at my phone, or I'm just daydreaming. And she'll ask me something, and I'll look up at her, and I'll say, yeah. And she'll look back at me and say, I didn't ask you a question with yeah, a yes or no answer. You weren't listening, were you? And then I have to admit, okay, I wasn't listening. And while that's just a lighthearted thing, so it seems, I think if we're not careful, we go through life missing how Scripture wants us to speak to others in their suffering and speak to us in our suffering. Because when you're suffering, not only do other people speak to you, but you end up speaking to yourself, don't you? You hear your own thoughts, your own questions. And how should we begin? How do you talk to a suffering person? We know in the book of Job, Job's friends waited seven days to speak to him. They helped show that they understood the intense grief, but then they blew it. The moment they opened their mouth, they just completely blew it. So even though Job's friends were silent, they seemed to understand, but they open their mouth and they fall on their face. That brings up another question. Once you begin to speak to somebody, what do you go into? What do you start to say? Not just how do you start speaking to somebody who's suffering. How do you keep going? takes a lot of skill and wisdom and sensitivity, doesn't it? Doesn't it help if you've been through the same type of suffering? Well, today we're going to actually see what the Apostle Peter would say to a group of people who are suffering, and it is glorious. It is so instructive for us that we've got to look at it for a little bit of time. So turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Peter. It's on page 1014 in the Bible near you, under the seats, page 1014. This is 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12. And I want you to notice something as we read these first 12 verses. I want you to notice where is it when he's speaking that he locks in and he shows them, I understand what you're going through. He's not insensitive. He's not just preaching at them. He understands the complexity that they're suffering, and we're going to talk about why they're suffering. And he meets them with a word that is so apt and fitting. So let's read this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. The word of the Lord is this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in 
Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask now in this time, you would be glorified. The salvation that you've given us, Lord, may we see how it changes us, everything about us, how it stretches to eternity, past, present, future, Father, give us a real taste, a real sense this morning. Stir us up, Lord, to see how glorious and majestic and cosmic our salvation is. And we pray, Lord, for those in this room or the hearing of this this word this morning. We pray for those that, that hear but don't believe, that don't know the joy of salvation, that you would crush their puny, weak view of your salvation. Crush their obstacles for not calling out to you in faith for salvation. And would you grant them salvation through your word. Equip us, Lord. Help us. Father, help us to see what you've said and apply it to our lives for our good for our joy, for the good and joy of others, and for the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So who's writing this this letter? It's Peter. First word of the whole letter, Peter. We're going to take a minute, just a, a short detour, and step back and just look at the overview of this whole letter. How does it start? What does he say throughout? How does it end? But just an overview. 
starts with Peter. He's the one who's writing. You know Peter, he's the fisherman who was in Galilee, and Jesus came up to him, gave him this nickname instead of Simon. He says, I'm going to call you Peter. And he tells him, you're going to become a fisher of men. And Peter is this disciple who walks with Christ. He suffers. He stumbles. But he walks with Christ so much so that he's not just an eyewitness, but he's sent by God. He's commissioned as an apostle. This is Peter in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to an interesting group of people. You know, earlier we thought about the question, what do you say to somebody who's suffering? What do you say to a group of people who are suffering? That ups the challenge a little bit. Peter's writing to a group of people. They're scattered. They're Gentiles. Here's how we know that, briefly. Take note of chapter 1, verse 18. He says, I know that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. He doesn't say my forefathers or our forefathers. He says your. He shows that distinction. Your ancestors, your forefathers were different than mine. Peter was Jewish. These are Gentiles. There's another clue. Chapter 2, verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have. The Jews were those who had always considered themselves God's people. Gentiles didn't think that way. He's affirming that thought. And then another clue would be chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, The times passed for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them. Hmm. That's a clue, isn't it? If you're Jewish and you're not partaking of what the Gentiles want to do, the pagan rituals, the idolatry, they would say, okay, whatever, that person's Jewish at this time during the first century. But if you were a Gentile and you refused to participate, that would cause a lot of surprise, wouldn't it? So these are the clues that show us it's Peter writing and he's writing to Gentiles. Yes, there are Jews in this group, to be sure, but it's mostly Gentiles. And where are they? Well, verse 1, towards the end of verse 1, it tells us. They're in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. This is a vast region. If you're like me growing up, whenever a preacher would say old-school names and some modern-day name, I could never connect the dots let me just put it to you simply. This is a vast region on the corner of the Roman Empire beyond the Taurus mountain range. This is a region where Paul was prevented to go. We don't know all the answers, but Acts 16.6 says that when Paul was doing missionary journeys, he was prevented from going into Bithynia by the Spirit of God. This is somewhat of a mysterious place in the biblical instruction we have. Because Paul didn't go there. And we don't have record of other Christians going there. It's kind of interesting. It's a vast place, though. It spans hundreds and hundreds of miles. I did the math. I looked it up. This would be like if you went from the western part of the state of Texas 
and you drove all the way to California. The western part of Texas, you drove all the way. Past New Mexico, past Arizona, you made it to California. That vast stretch of land, hundreds and hundreds of miles, that's the region Peter's writing to. A vast stretch of modern-day Turkey. And why is he writing? He tells us at the end of the letter. Flip over to chapter 5, verse 12. And put your eyes on chapter 5, verse 12, because it's so sweet, isn't it, when a scripture tells us the point of the scriptures. We don't have to guess why did he write. He tells us. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Why is he writing? He wants them to stand firm. If that's all we knew about the letter, it would be helpful. But you know what else is helpful? To read the whole letter first before you try to decide what a letter is about. So I remember looking at this thinking, okay, he he wants them to stand firm. Other places talk about that. But what's different here? Stand firm sounds kind of generic. Here's what's different. In 1 Peter, the word suffering is used 17 times. Every single chapter, every single chapter mentions the word suffering. So when he says at the end, I want you to stand firm in the true grace of God, it's not just generic, be strong. It's stand firm under this weight of suffering that's pressing down on you. These trials, these hardships. Peter heard about them. And he knows trials and hardships of his own. So he writes to them. Their culture that they were in, this Gentile culture, had turned hostile. The air that they breathed, these Christians, was growing thin. Much like our culture, isn't it? Doesn't it seem like it's becoming increasingly more hostile to be a Christian? If you live out your faith publicly, that is. And what does he say? What's the theme of this whole letter? Well, 1 Peter, the theme, if you wanted to summarize it in five words, it would be this. Sojourners suffering well in Christ. Sojourners suffering well in Christ. That's the theme. So don't be mistaken. This morning, we're going to spend the majority of our glance at this letter talking about salvation. But the reason is he's trying to equip them to stand firm in their suffering. So we're going to figure out this idea together because he tells us, what is the connection between our salvation, our joy in it, and our suffering? What's the connection? Why bring it up? Why talk about it? Let's look. Here's the main idea. The main idea of what Peter says in these first 12 verses is this. Rejoice in your glorious salvation. Rejoice in your glorious salvation. But it's not a command. Nowhere in here will you see a command. That brings up a question. How do you get somebody to rejoice in something without telling them you need to rejoice in something? You do it by showing them how great it is. That's what he does. He paints a picture here of salvation and he details it and equips them to suffer well. Every single verse that we just read either mentions salvation 
or tells us an implication of our salvation. And they're all linked together. So let's walk through this chapter verse by verse and see what God has for us. And my prayer this morning is that we will come to see how our identity has been changed by our salvation. Our ability to see things in front of us and unseen things in the past, present, future has been changed by salvation. And even our own imagination of what we think God can do falls short of the glory that is our salvation. So look with me at these, these verses. Point number one, salvation is more glorious than your innate identity. We see that in verses one and two. Salvation is more glorious than your innate identity. Verse 1, he tells them this spiritual and geographical reality. And then verse 2, he's going to give a summary of salvation and how that reality came about. So verse 1, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, these five provinces of the Roman Empire, that's the geographical reality. That'd be like me saying... Okay, I'm going to write to you who live in Austin and Round Rock and Cedar Park and Bastrop and Manor and Kyle and Buda, Bastrop, I hope I didn't leave anything out, Dripping Springs. You know, when I say those places, you immediately kind of get a little grin. Yeah, that's where I'm at. That's my place. No matter how much you like the traffic there, you at least smile knowing, okay, somebody remembers the region where I live. That's what these first century Christians would have felt when Peter begins to name these places that seem just so forgotten. But notice that there's a spiritual reality that's preeminent over their geographical reality. Watch how Peter leverages their salvation to explain their identity. So there in verse 1, the geographic region, it's familiar. Let's just say you live in Cappadocia. Oh, I'm a Cappadocian. He mentioned it. Or I'm a Bithynian. But what's unfamiliar are those words, elect exiles of the dispersion. Do you see that? These are unfamiliar because it's part of their new identity. And he states it first as primary. This is more foundational. This is their identity now. It doesn't matter where they were born. It doesn't matter what current citizenship they have. So here's the question. Does Peter think that they're on the run or something, trying to escape persecution? Is that why he's calling them exiles of the dispersion? Well, let's take each word one at a time for a second. Elect, exiles, dispersion. That word election, to elect is election. It's an act of God before creation where he chooses some to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. That's the textbook systematic definition that a guy will be fed in seminary. If you're at the dinner table, though, if you're on the street and somebody says, what does it mean to be elect? That just means God's choice. God's choice. But hold on to each word for a second because we're about to combine these together. Election is God's choice. More on that in a moment when we get to verse 2. Exiles, that's a word. You know what it means. That means not in their homeland. They're away from their native country. That's what it means to be in exile. There's synonyms in this very letter. Chapter 2, verse 11, mentions the word sojourners and exiles. But other translations would say pilgrims or aliens, 
strangers, transients. You take all these together and it's just, it's a group of people who are just moving along because they're not in their homeland. Just transient, they're just passing through. And he calls them exiles? These Gentiles? Who would have heard about the Jewish exile? And been like, Peter, excuse me. We're not in exile. This would have sounded strange to them at first. Heaven is their new homeland. So Peter is right to call them exiles. They don't have a home anymore. He's shattering that reality. And then he uses that word of the dispersion. James would begin his letter the same way, except James writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Here, Peter writes to elect exiles of the dispersion. Dispersion just means scattered or dispersed. This was a common term for the Jews who were scattered throughout the world after the exile of 587 B.C. This was a forced deportation caused by Israel's unfaithfulness. Exile was a punishment. Babylon was an agent of God's justice, removed them from the land. So how can Peter apply this term to Gentiles if it's a Jewish term? And how can Peter apply this exile term to these Gentiles if they're not in exile in a physical sense where they've left their homes? Well, that's the beauty of that first word, elect. Everything flows from it. This election of God, the election that he has, his choice to save, changes everything about a person's innate identity. If you put these terms together, elect, exiles, dispersion, Peter is helping these Christians see that these terms of God's chosen people in the past now explain their identity. To be a citizen of heaven means you no longer have a home on earth. You're passing through. I wonder how that sounds to you as an American. Most of you as a white American. I wonder how that sounds to you as a Texan. As an adopted Texan, I've been thoroughly enjoying my two and a half, three months. I've almost been counting the days that I've been a Texan. Because it's nice. It comes with some good privileges. And as much pride as I felt when I put the Texas license plate on my car, this was a nice stinging rebuke when I started to study this letter. Christian, stop being so consumed with your current identity, where you live, your status, the family you were born into, your ethnicity, where you live, which part of town you live. That is no longer the dominant reality about your identity. That's not your home. You're passing through. What should this do to our grip on the world if we realize we are just passing through? Our innate identity has been replaced. You know what this is supposed to do for us? Expect to suffer. To use a sports analogy for a second, we know what it's like for teams to play home and away games, don't we? 
I got to go with Arthur Coleman to my first University of Texas basketball game. It was great. They played Baylor. It was double overtime. They lost right at the end, but uh, it was a great game. I felt like I got my money's worth because it was free. Arthur paid for the ticket, but Arthur really got his money worth because it was double overtime. You know what I noticed, though, looking out at the game? There's just a few sprinkling of that neon green Baylor color. Baylor Bears. In the midst of this sea of that burnt orange, the white, the Longhorns. And you know what? It's not that uncomfortable to be on the home team. As you look around, you've got all your fans. And if you're a fan, you look around, you've got all these other people who agree with your way of thinking, your priorities, what you want to happen. But what Peter's saying here is, you know what? You're on the away team now, not just for a game, for every single game that you play now. Who would sign up to be on that team? Imagine the suffering that would come. That doesn't sound very fun to say. But Peter knows that just like a doctor would tell you in the doctor's office, this is true, even though it's kind of hard to hear, but you need to know it. He starts off talking about how their salvation actually, it changes your innate identity. But this is good news. It's glorious. It's not good news for you if you love the culture you're in. But to the extent that you're disenchanted with the culture or country or state, or province, or home life, or whatever that you live in, you'll rejoice in this. But this levels all of us, doesn't it, in the church. Our identities don't separate us anymore. It shouldn't hinder us from getting to know one another. We have a new identity. Exiles don't have rights and privileges in their society. So I wonder... How do you model this for your children or your grandchildren? That you're just an exile passing through. Does this mean we can't fight in the military or pledge our allegiance? No. We've got to take all of Scripture. Scripture would say in the Proverbs that blessed is the man who leaves an inheritance to his children after him. So it's not like, okay, the earth is not my home, so I'm going to mismanage it and be a bad steward and not participate. Even in this very letter, you flip over chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And then how does he end chapter 2, verse 17? Honor the emperor. What a tension. He pulls the tension tight. You're in exile. You're passing through. But never use that as an excuse. Honor the emperor. You're still responsible for how you engage with society as much as you disdain the trajectory that society seems to be going on. So if their innate identity is different, what caused this? Well, he tells us in verse 2, God is responsible for their new identity. It's a Trinitarian God who is responsible for it. It says it's according to the foreknowledge of God. This explains more of what this election choice of God comes from, what it's grounded in. It's grounded in the foreknowledge of God. So God's not looking into the future when he created us, and he's going to let the events of history play out. He's going to see who chooses him, and then he's going to rewind the tape. Those are the people I'm going to choose, because they chose me. That's not what happened. 
God doesn't rewind the tape and then play it forward. The folly of thinking that would be we chose God before he chose us. If God saw that we were going to make some choice for him and then he said, yep, that's going to be the one I elect, the glory and the boasting could go to you and I, couldn't it? But God's foreknowledge means he chose them. He planned it ahead of time. Peter would use the same word in Acts 2, 23, foreknowledge of Christ's death. He said Christ was delivered up according to the definite plan. A definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This wasn't an accident to see how history would play out. It was determined beforehand. You're not an accident. Your salvation is not accidental. This choice of God to love you, set his love on you, it's not in you. It's not something that you merited. And then he says after that, same verse, verse 2, in the sanctification of the Spirit. This just means to be set apart by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit applies what the Father planned and what Christ accomplished. Because right after that it says, for obedience to Jesus Christ, sprinkling with his blood. These two ideas are capturing that same idea of being in the new covenant. Hebrews 12, 24 mentions the new covenant in connection with Christ's blood being sprinkled. Exodus 24, 3 through 8, when the people have left Egypt, they're given the law at Mount Sinai. There's this moment of the giving of the law and them pledging their obedience where they're sprinkled with blood. The sacrifices are sprinkled with blood, the altar is sprinkled with blood, and they are sprinkled with blood. Why? Because our obedience alone is insufficient for our salvation. It's the blood of Christ that makes us righteous. That's what the Holy Spirit applies to us as part of the plan of God. So this first two verses, we have to camp out on and spend some time on. The reason we went slow through verses 1 and 2 is it's foundational to everything else that he says. Your identity has now been changed by glorious salvation. So point one, your salvation is more glorious than your innate identity. And point two, your salvation is more glorious than your immediate sight. Verses three through nine carry this idea. And if you're curious, let me go ahead and give you point three, because that's going to be the fastest point. It may only be about 30 seconds at the end of the sermon. Point three, salvation is more glorious than your imagination. So it's more glorious than our identity. It's more glorious than what we can immediately see. And here in verses 3 through 9, he starts talking about things that we see in the past, the present, and the future. Did you notice that? Look at verse 3. This is talking about the past. Here, Peter details even further the scope of our salvation. It's according to his mercy. We deserved wrath, but we were given mercy. And it says there in verse 3, he caused us. So three times now, you've been elect, you've been chosen by God. This is part of his foreknowledge, and he caused. He's just going to say it real clear. In case you're forgetting, he caused you to be born again. But when we look at our salvation, don't we always, we kind of look at it as like a decision, don't we? It's one-time thing. That was what I was taught growing up. It's the way I would speak about it. Hey, when did you get saved? 
That's not necessarily wrong, it's just incomplete, isn't it? And he grounds all of this there in verse 3 with a historical fact, the resurrection. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why our hope is living. It's living because it's a person. A person who death could not conquer. Christ rose again. I like how one Presbyterian pastor put it. He said, here we see a hope that holds the future in the present. A hope that holds the future in the present because it's anchored in the past. Christ is risen. But if verse 3 is the past, verse 4 is the future. He goes on to say in verse 4, we have this living hope, but it's now an inheritance. It's not just a hope that Christ rose from the grave and all we do is look to the past. We look to the future, an inheritance. This was an Old Testament concept. The Jews would have immediately thought of their land as an inheritance, but a Gentile would also have thought of land or possessions. We would do well to remember Matthew 6.19 when Jesus says, Don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroys. Thieves can break in, but instead your treasure ought to be in heaven. And that's what Peter says their treasure is in heaven. He says this is an inheritance. Notice there, three negative terms. Why does he go negative on us? imperishable, undefiled, unfading. He does the negative because in the original language, stating it in the negative, it rhymed, all three words. They all started with the letter A. They all ended the same way. It's hard for us to see this in English, but in the original, it would have been so memorable to hear. Imperishable, meaning it's the negation of what's corrupt and perishable. Something that can perish, you negate that and you say it's imperishable. Something that can be defiled, to negate that, it's undefiled. Something that can fade, I'm going to negate that, it's unfading. That's the inheritance awaiting the Christian. It's imperishable, meaning it can't vanish before it gets obtained. It can't die out. It can't be corrupted by sin or flaw. It can't fade. It can't dry up and wither. If you think about the Old Testament, the inheritance of land was susceptible to all three of these, wasn't it? War could come. The war and battle that happens on land could cause it to be perishable for you. You'd, you might die. You might not get the inheritance. The idea of sin defiling the land it does no good to be alive in a land but be sinful because then it's defiled and you're not properly enjoying it. But even the land was susceptible to something other than warfare and other than sin, and that is drought and famine. The refreshment of the land could fade. And so Peter here is contrasting a normal inheritance, what we would naturally think of with a heavenly one, that is untouchable. It's an inheritance untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It's compounded by immortality, purity, and beauty. 
Why is this the case? He tells us right at the end of the verse. It's kept in heaven for you. The reason it's so untouchable and pure and secure is because God keeps it for you. I wonder how often you think about your inheritance. I wonder how you would maybe tithe to your church or other ministries or other needs or give to the poor in your community if you thought, you know what, my inheritance is not here. This doesn't mean that houses or money or a great legacy, whatever you think of as an inheritance that you can't work for, but this should change the way we think about retirement, shouldn't it? It should change the way we think about how badly we want and need something and how hard we try to fight to protect it. We want to be good stewards, but we don't want to make these idols. And they were idols to Gentiles. That's why Peter is writing. You have a new inheritance. It's in the future. Salvation is more glorious than what you immediately see because what you see in the past is now different. You see Christ. What you see in the future is not just your earthly legacy. You see beyond that to your future inheritance. And here's where it gets really good. Now he moves into the present. So from verse 5 all the way down to verse 9, he starts talking about the present. He tells us in verse 5, that this is a comfort that not only is kept by God, but God keeps us. He keeps us by faith. This is somewhat of a mystery. It's God's power, but yet we have a responsibility to have faith. We're not robots. Philippians would say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So it's a mystery. God's power guards us through faith. And yet, we are active, real, choosing moral agents who have to keep striving in faith. But yet, God holds us. So we don't need to despair to think something's going to happen to us next week that our faith can't handle. God's keeping us. And this is a faith, what does it say there at the end of verse 5? Until salvation is revealed... Why does faith end there? Well, that's when your faith turns to sight. Your salvation's revealed. This kind of has that future leaning that affects the present. It, these realities are so big, they can't just be put in one box. This is just the present, just the past, just the future. And then in verse 6, this is where Peter identifies with them. He shows his own sensitivity. He gets it. He understands. And he speaks to the complexity of, of our human experience. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Ask any mother who sent her child off to college what it feels like to have mixed emotions. There's a real grieving that loved one leaves the home, but there's a real rejoicing that They're moving on. And it's not just with college and moms and kids. There's a whole host of things. Peter speaks to the complexity of how we feel different emotions. This is like the psalm that we read earlier in the service, Psalm 13. Why, O Lord, 
these questionings, feeling these deep questions, and then at the end of the psalm, there's a rejoicing. We are complex as human beings. We rejoice, but we have real grief. It's both. So by way of application, be a Christian that acknowledges that. As pastors, we need to acknowledge that. Both for us and for you, do not be the type of Christian that does not treat people holistically. When somebody's grieving and going through something, don't minimize it and just talk about good and think that you're not allowed to mention the grief or bring it up. Peter does. Peter brings it up right here. It's real grief. This is in their immediate sight. But Peter wants to show them there's something more going on. Your salvation is so glorious that these real struggles and hardships and griefs you have, there's more going on. James would talk about trials too, doesn't he? James emphasizes that trials produce this character in us. Peter echoes that idea, and he actually gives us a purpose statement. He wants us to look at the unseen. Did you notice what he said about the griefs they feel, the trials? He frames it by saying, for a little while, and he says, if necessary. He says for a little while because life is short, salvation is huge, and if you frame your trials through the lens of your salvation, you'll see how short they are. And he says if necessary because in one sense, the gospel causes us to be alienated from the priorities and values of the unbelieving society around us. So in some sense, it is necessary. Verse 7, he tells us the purpose of their trials, and by way of implication, our trials. He says that in verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. That word tested is also the word proven. So consider that this is a divinely inspired metaphor. That means we're allowed to climb inside and think about it because it's divinely inspired. It's not a metaphor that you and I might make up and hope that we're getting it right. This is really how it is. And what is the metaphor he uses? Gold refined by fire. This is metal smelting. Melting of metals is called smelting. This is where the ore is taken out of the ground and it's impure and by a process of being heated up, exposure to the flame, beyond its melting point, the impurities rise to the surface, this dross, these impurities rise up and they can be scraped or poured off and there's a refining. The gold is more pure, it's proven more pure not because something was added into it but something was taken away from it isn't that true of us what God needs to do in us is take away more of our sinful tendencies and desires and inclinations so that we might look more like Christ Amazon has a gold smelting kit that you can buy do you know that 
It's called the Cast Master Elite. It's $349.97. It's the Cast Master Propane Furnace with 5 kg crucible and tongs, to be exact. And here's what's kind of humorous. You know how on Amazon they've got an item and then at the bottom it says frequently bought together? Scroll down. This is all sermon research stuff. Stuff that you don't really care about, right? Now scroll down. I was trying to learn about gold. Process. And it said frequently bought together. The cast, cast master plus heat resistant gloves. Heat resistant safety gloves. So I laughed out loud because I thought, hmm, that should probably be in the original kit that people can purchase, but it's not. And then the next item frequently bought with all these was a high-density graphite long stirring rod. Hmm, that, I wish that was in the kit too, but these people who are buying these kits, obviously they're smart enough to know, or Amazon, somebody's smart enough to know, you should probably buy this with this. So that all seems pretty cool and humorous. You know why? Because we're looking at it through the perspective of not being the gold. But this is not funny because we are the gold. He uses this metaphor to say your faith is like gold and it's being refined. And this hurts because gold has to be brought beyond its melting point in this process. Our faith needs refinement. One pastor said it this way, God sends trials to strengthen our trust in him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. The fire doesn't destroy the gold. It it only removes the, the impurities. Faith is infinitely more valuable. So why the refining process? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 7 so that this refined, proven, genuine faith will be found to result in praise and glory. A pure faith leads to the praise and glory and honor of Christ. Your response in your trials matters. It matters because in the book of Revelation, it tells us there's not only a book of life with names written in it, but there's other books that will be brought out in judgment. It tells us this in Revelation 20, 12 through 15. There's other books that record all the deeds that you've done and everybody who's ever lived. And some of those deeds are going to be, how did this person respond in this trial? And this verse is encouraging because it says, those things result in praise and honor and glory of Christ. In other words, Your salvation is so glorious, it helps you look to the unseen, that your trial, yes, it's refining you as a perp, but it's bigger than you. It's meant to be this opportunity and moment to declare more of God's honor and glory and praise on the last day. And then verse 8, he continues talking about the present. Peter says that this is, this is something that has to do with Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Peter, this, that's easy for you to say you've seen him. You're an apostle. But Peter knows, and echoing in his mind, is the words that Jesus said to Thomas in John 20. Thomas doubts. He says, unless I can 
see the scar in your hands. He takes it a step further. Unless I can touch it, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus allows him to feel that place in his hands and his side. And Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Peter's seen Jesus, but he's writing to those who haven't. He knows he's got to remind them of what Jesus said, lest they for a second think, well, your trials are easier because you saw Christ. The love and joy they have in Christ is real. It's inexpressible. This is the sweet part about being a believer, is it not? We have fellowship and communion with Christ that is inexpressible and joyful. Even though we don't see him physically. A similar phrase at the end of verse 9, this obtaining the outcome of your faith, happens at the end of verse 5 and the end of verse 7. So the end of verse 5 talks about things that are going to be revealed, our salvation. The end of verse 7 talks about this tested faith will be found to result in praise and honor. In the end of verse 9, what is it that our looking to Jesus, even though he's unseen and loving him, results in, it results in obtaining the outcome of your faith, your salvation. And yet again, our salvation is so glorious because the future is then overlapping with the present again, and the past is overlapping. This is all language of the already, not yet. We get a taste of things. There's more to come. We experience fellowship with Christ now. We will see him face to face at the end. So our final thought today in this passage is how can we actually rejoice in a Jesus we haven't seen? It sounds poetic. How do you actually do it? Well, that's why verses 10 and 12 tell us that salvation is more glorious than your imagination. Look at what it says there in verse 10. It says, this salvation the prophets prophesied about. In other words, they They wrote it down. This is the scriptures. And Peter knew Jesus as an eyewitness. We know from the second letter he wrote. And he says there's something more sure than an eyewitness being there. Peter doesn't just go through life banking on these memories of Christ. He banks on the written word. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that, Yes, I was there when I heard the voice. You are my beloved son. He gives this encounter. And he says, We have something more sure than that the prophetic word. And verses 10 through 12 tell us that our imagination is too small. We live in a privileged time. We now see what the prophets wrote about. They longed to see what we see. They could only imagine all the effects of what the Messiah would do. We see it. We have a privilege and an advantage When it says Spirit of Christ in these verses, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. We know that from Romans 8. And did you notice how the passage ends? These are things into which angels long to look. Angels don't know the future. Angels don't experience salvation. But they long to look into these things because they are beyond what they could imagine. God redeeming people, saving them, causing the past, present, and future to overlap with their present life, I want to look into this and see it. 
is a lot bigger than just a one-time decision. Salvation, isn't it? So Peter is commanding them, you know how you should handle your trials first? You should rejoice in your salvation. It's more glorious than this identity you were given at birth. It's more glorious than the things you immediately see. It's more glorious than what you can imagine. There's even angels looking at these things. So we have to end with the gospel. And that is God created you not only to see these things. Because even the demons see this stuff happening. The demons saw the resurrection. But you're meant to rejoice in it. If you have never turned from your sin, if you've never let go of your own identity, if you've never let go of the inheritance that you think is coming to you or not coming to you, And if you've never let go of those things and turned to Christ in faith that he really did rise from the grave and his death on the cross was then proven as a real sacrifice, then all that's left for you if you don't believe in that is that you're like the gold that's refined that's proven to not really be gold. It's just fool's gold. It's just, it's all impurities. You have no way to handle the trials of your life. You have nothing to bank on. You have no glorious salvation to hope in. So I'm urging you this morning, trust in Christ, and you can rejoice in this glorious salvation. And if you are a believer in Jesus, don't try to tell yourself, I should rejoice in this. Look at it. Go look at how glorious it is, and God's Spirit will allow you to begin to rejoice. Let's help one another rejoice in our salvation. Let's remind each other of how glorious it is. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for telling us about how incredible your gift of salvation is. Help us to be those who believe what you've just said. Help us to be those who are able to stand firm in our trials of how good your salvation is. Yes, we grieve, but let our grief be met by this joy. Help us, Lord, to live this out, not just to think about it or hear it, but to live out this joy. We love you. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives, even what we can't see. In Christ's name, amen.